What's up guys? Welcome back to Life Unfiltered. Today we are going to be talking about a very triggering topic for some. We're going to be talking about abuse. So it's going to be composed of partner and spousal and child and everything in between and also stuff for counselors as well. And so just wanted to give kind of a trigger warning here at the beginning of the episode to let you know that if you're going through that, welcome. You're not alone, but we want to be mindful of just letting you know that it's going to be a very unfiltered conversation with tact, but also discussing some hard issues. So if you need to skip this one, feel free to, but for everybody else, welcome to the episode. Welcome back to Life Unfiltered with Felicia and Josh. Today we have special guest Daniel Ross, who is a licensed clinical social worker. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. So uh, right off the bat, can you just tell everybody a little bit about your therapeutic career? I got involved with therapy. Uh, I was actually going to school for a forensic physical anthropologist. And my wife was practicing. She's a licensed clinical social worker. So as a licensed clinical social worker, she's getting ready to take all of her tests. And she was practicing, and I was asking her a bunch of questions. So <clears throat> I'm, a, I'm a smart aleck, and I <laughs> made a somewhat smart aleck report reply of come on you got to know the answer to this one because even I know the answer to this one (laughs) (coughs) well it went over as expected and uh, (laughs) she said some things that uh, prompted me to go okay fine I don't like challenges so she said fine if you think you're so good at it why don't you become a therapist and lo and behold here I am so I stopped being a physical therapist physical anthropologist and transferred everything over to become a licensed clinical social worker. Mm. So I've been doing as a licensed clinical social worker since 2014. So almost just under nine years. Yeah. Yeah. And you've had, you've done uh, private practice and you've done uh, the VA. and I've worked at the VA. I worked at private agencies. I had a private practice. I'm a equestrian therapist as well. I use horses in therapy. That's what my private practice was in. My mouth is wide open. Over <laughs> 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 yeah. yeah, so we use, I, I've used horses in therapy. I'm a GALA certified, which, the, uh, which is Equestrian Assisted Growth and Learning Association. It's using equestrian therapy. So we use it primarily for, it works for trauma. It works for um, working with autistic kids. It has all kinds of various types of stuff that it can be used in. But that was what my private practice was in. But I, I've been doing trauma, domestic violence, substance use, uh, working with the homeless, kind of a full range of clients. Yeah. Can you tell people what VA is? You guys use that language. I don't know. What VA is the Veterans Administration, and it covers all of the VA will cover any of the mental health, behavioral health, or medical assistance that veterans will use. Okay. 
I know uh, some of the language that you guys use on, uh, it will be helpful, I think, for our listeners. When I don't know something, I'm going to assume <laughs> some of the people don't know something. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you're currently doing substance abuse. Uh, yes, right now, currently, I'm the clinical supervisor for a substance use facility. Got it. Okay. So, yeah, so there's a lot of overlap with kind of what you've progressively done. People in the substance, people who work in the substance use field have a tendency to kind of cross over and do a lot of different stuff. So we'll have substance use with trauma. We'll have substance use with domestic violence, court cases, DUIs, DWIs, um, severe mental health issues associated with everything else. So when you're in the field of substance use, you're going to come across mental health issues and everything else. So it's going to be across the board. Yeah. The hard part is it also has a tendency to burn therapists out because of the fact that it is sometimes so intense that it makes it somewhat difficult. But I enjoy it. Yeah. Doesn't burn you out or it does burn you out? No. No. Not at all. It's all that coffee you're drinking. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Caffeine keeps me going. <laughs> Absolutely. So the thing that we want to talk about today is abuse involving domestic violence, child uh, kind of trauma uh, okay. overall. And so being in the field for nine years and just having uh, the life experience there, and also us knowing each other, like I, I figured it would be advantageous to bring you in since you're an expert on trauma. And I have a lot of knowledge. Yeah, <coughs> I, I was I was gonna say the the certification might not be there, but there's the right. there's the there's the actual experience of it. So can you just first off kind of dispel any myths of abuse that are out there? Because I know I know there's some, but I'm I'm curious with all of your work, the most common ones that you hear when uh, working with individuals? There's a lot of myths that are associated with domestic violence. Some of the biggest ones are males are not victims. It's very difficult for, generally speaking, it's very difficult for males to come forward indicating that they're in a domestic violence relationship. Whether that's a same-sex relationship, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But males have a tendency to be less likely to report domestic violence. Since they're less likely to report domestic violence, it goes highly, highly underreported. So most people will assume that if it's a domestic violence situation, it's going to be male on female, and the female is always going to be the victim. That's probably one of the biggest myths that's out there. If you really look at it, and it's probably more anecdotal related, is it's probably close to 60-40. It's not quite necessarily 50-50, but it's not necessarily like 80-20. It's more likely 60-40, where 40% of men that are in a relationship are in a quote-unquote legal definition of domestic violence. The hard part is that legal definition of what domestic violence is is ambiguous at best. So what a lot of people will consider to be domestic violence is the very high end of what domestic violence is. That's hand on hand. That's hand on person. That's a hit. That's a slap. That's uh, that's not just that's a physical abuse. And if you're physically abused, then it's a domestic violence. If it's 
raising your voice and hollering, well, that's just an argument. We just got into a disagreement. Um, that's not necessarily domestic violence. However, that's a myth. If it's constant, it's verbal abuse, it's emotional intimidation, it's withholding affection combined with financial abuse. Where, as an example, if you're in a relationship and in that relationship, you as we'll refer to as the receiver of the, the abuse, if you're the receiver of the abuse, you may, you may be in a relationship where you're not allowed to carry your driver's license. You're not, a carry, you're not allowed to carry your ID. You're not allowed to carry any money when you go out. You're not allowed to carry your cell phone when you go out. It's very controlling. In that kind of controlling relationship, if it's, it doesn't have to be extreme. It just has to be constant. Now, if it's your choice of I don't want to carry a purse, I don't want to carry a pocketbook, I don't want to throw everything in my backpack, I, I, it's just easier if I just give you my ID because we're going to go out maybe drinking or do whatever, and I I'm a, might need my ID. If you carry my ID for me, that's fine. If it's that's not what we're talking about, we're talking about you're not allowed to go out of the house. You're not allowed to leave the premises without some kind of communication. That in and of itself can be abuse. So it's kind of a big myth about what kind of constitutes myth and, or uh, domestic abuse and it kind of gets, for the most part, most people get really confused about it. So it's, it, it depends. It sounds like there's a lot of other types of abuse that go into domestic abuse. It's not just domestic abuse. Well, d domestic abuse is kind of like an overwhelming category. You have physical abuse, you can have emotional abuse, you can have mental abuse, you can even have financial abuse, you can have medical abuse, depending on where you get into it. And a lot of that can be if you're taking advantage of somebody who cannot take care of themselves. If you're in a relationship where they're highly disabled, they're not able to get on their own, and you're, you refuse to take them where they need to go, technically that's abuse. That, that's an abusive relationship. Mm. And sometimes it's not just a, a significant other partnership. It's not an intimate partnership. It can be you're taking care of your parents. Now all of a sudden that's elder abuse where you're not doing the same thing. Child abuse kind of falls in that same category. So when you have elder abuse, you have child abuse, you have domestic abuse, it's all related in the sense of the perpetrator is just a perpetrator. If they're doing it to children, they may be doing it to a spouse or a significant other their partner, but they may end up doing it to elders as well. Abusers have a tendency to be abusers. The other big myth is most people refer to people that are being abused, they constantly refer to them as victims. I was going to ask about that because even in, so the questions that Josh mostly wrote, <laughs> and by that I mean all of them, <laughs> uh, because I was like, I don't know what to ask or what I'm doing, I'm curious about a lot of this. I noticed in the language he never said victim. Right. So can you talk about that a little bit? When we're dealing with people in an abusive situation, child abuse, elder abuse, domestic abuse, when we're dealing with people that are in abusive situations, we try not to use the victim. Mm -hmm. Because what ends up happening is victim is a very negative impacted word. When you hear the, the term victim, 
you're looking at somebody who is unable to have a positive view. So a lot of times we get into the case where we start referring to them as maybe survivors. It's more positive. You're not a victim anymore. You're going to be a survivor of this. You're going to find a way to get through it, get around it, get over it, get under it, get on the other side of it, whatever terminology people use. It's you're going to work your way through this that has a tendency to be more of a survivor mentality, so we try not to use the word victim. Wow. In a legal sense, you have perpetrator, and those are all legal terms. Mm -hmm. So we try to stay away from even legal terms because then it's people have associated with only a legal context, and it's not just a, a legal context. Yeah. On the other side, then, do you not say abuser? Or can you say the abuser? We can say abuser. I try to avoid abuser. You have and avoid perpetrator. We're not looking at those are more legal terms. Um, we just kind of I have a tendency if I'm doing like a domestic violence group or working with folks that are domestic violence, we're not allowed to call them anything other than their name. Oh wow! Because we have to make it personal. Right, right. That makes sense. If you're constantly looking at somebody and saying that's the perpetrator. He's the one that did this, or she's the one that did this. That's the perpetrator. That's the offender. That's, the, well, all of a sudden it's like, okay, I'm sorry, what's that name? When we're dealing with, you know, if I'm dealing with somebody ha who has been on the receiving end of domestic violence, they're not allowed to refer to the abuser, for the most part, other than their name, because it kind of keeps it more personal. It's a matter of, the person as well as the behavior and sometimes that's the other thing that we have to do is we have to separate the person from the behavior sometimes they're so interconnected you almost can't mm -hmm. but sometimes we have to look at that separation is it the person or the behavior most of the time it's the behavior that we're addressing so danny with all that being said what's been your experience of working with both um survivors and then perpetrators of the of the abuse and then what made you want to work with both sides of the, that coin well i think one of the things to take into consideration is most of the time when we're dealing with male perpetrators we have to look at male perpetrators as male perpetrators we're not it's when we're dealing with perpetrators where you don't want to mix male and female even though you have, the, it's a perpetrator, quote unquote, perpetrator group. You're the abuser, we're gonna have, no, we have to have male and female separate. Because it's literally like cats and, I don't wanna say cats and dogs, but it's kind of literally oil and water, cats and dogs, getting males and females. When you have kind of that alpha mentality and you have people that are more dominant in their behavior, and then you have males that want to dominate females, and then you have females who want to dominate males, and you get both of them in a room to talk about who's dominating who and what a perpetrator is, you almost, it's literally, get ready for a cat fight, because it's gonna be, it's gonna be, it's not gonna be good. So we have to separate. So you absolutely separate them every time. We have a males group, and we have a females group. And we will have even male and for the best results, male victims, female victims, male survivors, female survivors. 
if you are the abused, it's a male abused, female abused, and they're separated. Because even females that are abused and with males that are abused, it has a tendency to be counterproductive because then males are even, a lot of times males feel less than the females that are being because that negative stereotype that men will have as victims. So now all of a sudden you're re-victimizing the victim by putting them in a room to where they're feeling less than even the female victims because they shouldn't be there. So it's kind of, you have to look at it that way. And so sometimes it's, to get the best results, you have to separate them. And some agencies do, and some agencies try not to because they may not have the staff, they may not have the time, but in my experience, best results are male and female groups are separated for both sides, mm -hmm. victim or abused. That makes sense to me. And also with what you're saying about kind of the stereotype, because of the fact that there's this kind of unspoken expectation uh, with a lot of the people that I interact with uh, on a weekly basis where it's, oh, I got to be the man. I got to be strong. I got to be confident. I can't show weakness. I can't show pain. I can't cry. I can't any of right. that. And so having a survivor who is male and is exhibiting all those things totally goes against the social norm. Right. The other factor that we have to take into consideration, and it's a small portion of the population is you have male perpetrators that know the system, know the way that it works. So it's not on, I don't want to say it's not uncommon, but it's, it's kind of, it happens on a regular basis to where you'll have former male perpetrators who can't seem to get what they want in that relationship who suddenly will upset the girlfriend, their significant other spouse, they'll upset that partner, where that partner will slap them. And then they will be the first ones to call 911 and say that I've been hit, and then press charges. So now what do you do? You take a former male perpetrator who now is the victim, and you're taking him and putting him in a mixed group? That's probably not going to be advantageous to anybody. But that's, that's relatively common, and, and it ties into a lot of times that will happen when you get in crazy situation and divorce cases and that kind of stuff where males don't want to pay child support. And so what's going to end up happening is you're going to have – it wouldn't be uncommon for a male to suddenly go, I'm the victim of domestic abuse. I've been hit and verbally assaulted, and I can cussed out, and I'm screamed at, and I, I'm worthless, and I can't do – and next thing you know, had that on top of, and she hit me. And so mm. now I want the kids. Mm. So I want the kids because you're the abuser. And oh, by the way, since I have the kids, and you have to pay me child support. Even though that person that is now in that situation, the female in this case, she's now having to, to do all that. To where now all of a sudden it's like she's a former victim, but now that's just one more manipulation tactic that sometimes perpetrators will use. 
that's an extreme example, but I've seen that happen on more than one occasion. So I'm really curious, what made you want to work with both sides? The hard part is that there's a lot of therapists that they only want to work with one side or the other because they look at the other side as, as the other. And I hate to say it that way, but that's how they look at it. It's the easiest way to kind of describe it. It's if they're dealing with the victim, and that's where most, most therapists want to work with the victim because that's where society says we should be working with. They, a lot of times it's like you're not going to – an abuser is abuser. He's always going to be – and it's normally a he is always going to be the abuser because it becomes common speak. It's not true. But we use those pronouns to kind of he's the abuser instead of just the abuser. So he is the evil one and she is the victim. So most of the time they're going to want to deal with the victims because that's more what society says needs to help. Males, the perpetrator of this is just the evil one and they need to go to jail and we don't need to, you can't, uh, you can't fix that. And a lot of times it, it's, if you take into consideration and you look at the situation, some small percentage, 10, 15% maybe, off the top of my head, 10, 15% maybe at that point to where they're probably always going to be an abuser. They're not going to be able to really learn how to manage and adjust to situations where screaming, hollering, physical abuse is going to be the answer. But that leaves 85% that have the ability to make changes to where alcohol wasn't involved. Um, I didn't get, just get fired from my job and now I'm about ready to lose my house. Uh, you're screaming about me finding a job and I'm feeling guilty about need. So there's lots and lots of situations to where there's situational abuse, and that's what I'll call it, to where based on that situation, the abuse was more likely to happen. So you're saying that 85% of perpetrators could potentially become not perpetrators for common for, well that doesn't mean they won't reoffend okay that just means the next time that they reoffend it may go from physical now emotional to where it, depending on what they're so a lot of times the severity gets lessened so we're not nearly as it's not a physical abuse so it depends on what you want to consider to be abuse if you consider physical abuse as abuse and physical abuse is not happening, it's like, yay, we're successful. But then all of a sudden they're emotionally abusive. They're verbally abusive. They're aggressive in their language and their tone. None of that has changed. They still chase people down the road and, you know, with road rage and everything else. They're just not doing that to their spouse or their kids. And all of a sudden it's like, yay. No, that's, uh, that's not the easiest way to look at it. So it doesn't say that they'll not do anything. It just means that the severity is probably going to be lessened. So it's not as if, you know, one and done kind of, oh, my gosh, what, look what I did, and, and now I'm done, I'm fixed. Hey, no, that's not the case. But So I don't look at them as solved, cured, whatever word we want to attach to it. I don't look at it that way because it's a constant struggle for a lot of people, especially if they have anger issues. 
You know, it's like, okay, I'm not going to take it out of my significant other because that will lead me into jail. But that Yahoo that doesn't know how to drive, hmm, that's free territory. I get to scream at him anytime I want to. No, that's you're still having issues. You're still having problems. So, it's it, yeah, so I wouldn't look at it the same way. That's that's really interesting. Um, just because it goes against, I think, what the normal view is, right? And also, I'm hearing you bring up a lot of different types of either, like, abuse or, or like, aggressive behavior. Like, what, like, you mentioned somewhere, it's like, road rage it's it's uh verbal it's physical like are there others that could happen to like family or friends or in the workplace like that type of thing i can you can almost get to the point where if i'm withholding affection i just stop can you say a little more about that i'm not going i'm in a relationship and i'm not going to i'm not going to say things like i'm not going to say nice things i'm not going to say mean things i'm just not going to say nice things I know you want me to tell you that I love you, but I, I'm going to refuse to say that. So it's a little bit of a hot and cold situation. Yeah. And if I want to control you, and I know what you want me to say, and I refuse to say that, what is that? I'm not doing anything to you. It's just that I'm not doing anything to you. Sometimes that's abuse. If you're in a relationship that you're putting everything into it, you're putting 100% effort into the relationship. They're putting 5% effort into the relationship. Could you say then in some cases like the silent, there's a difference between the silent treatment and then a silent treatment in the sense of abuse? I will look at silent, I will look at the silent treatment kind of of, that's the individual maybe taking a time out. I can't say anything right now because I don't know how to say anything without it coming out the wrong way. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is this is not the silent treatment. I'm talking to you. I'm just not telling you what you want to hear. It doesn't mean I'm not talking to you. I'm not being silent. I know you want me to say it, but I refuse. That's a choice. That's a choice that that individual is making. And when they make that choice, male or female, a perpetrator or victim, it doesn't matter because sometimes it goes both ways. That sword cuts both ways. I feel like that's where you get into like spousal neglect and then child neglect and, and that type of thing where you have, let's just take children because that's probably the easiest for, for me to uh, spell out here, but uh, a child needs affirmation or they need you know like food or they need like something and and it's literally um withheld from the sense of um I'm not gonna say it to you or I'm not gonna I'm not gonna give it to you but you know like I'm not I'm not gonna spell that out it's more subtle and I hear kind of that's what you're saying a little bit Subtle on an occasional basis, yes, but subtle on an occasional basis, that's not an issue. That's not a problem. That's somebody trying to figure out for themselves maybe, mm -hmm. how do I control myself? How do I work mm -hmm. on me? How do I manage this? I want to say this, but my head tells me I shouldn't say it, so I'm going to refrain from saying anything about that topic or that subject. That's, that's self-thought. That's, that's intuitiveness. That's kind of 
getting some insight. That's kind of self-reflective kind of, hmm, let me mm-hmm. think about this. Yeah. I'm not talking about that. Yeah, I'm no, ta- that's I'm different. I'm talking about you want lobster for dinner, but we can't afford lobster for dinner. Mm-hmm. But mm, is there a compromise? Mm-hmm then that's a negotiation. Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's fine. Yeah. But if we can afford lobster and you want lobster and I refuse to buy you lobster because it's my way of controlling, mm-hmm. yeah, that's where it starts crossing the line. Now, yeah. is that 5% abuse? Is that 20% abuse? Is that mm-hmm. abuse? Is that just... Sometimes, for the lack of a better word, I'm just going to call it assholeism. That's that's basically <laughs> that's a difference. Because <laughs> some people just want to do that. That's not abuse. That's just you're that's being just manip- them. That's just them. You're yeah. just you might be like that to everybody. That's not mm-hmm. spouse specific or partner yeah. specific or your children specific. Mm-hmm. That's just you specifically. Yeah, you fall into the category of yeah. That ism c- pops up a lot. That's just. That's your personality. That's just who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. No, that's helpful. Yeah. I th- I feel like the workplace has to be a little bit different in the sense of, like, what is defined. And then also, um, I feel like it might be that more subtle. Like, because um, I can't imagine, you know, 2023, people just, like, screaming their heads off and like being and like absolutely treating their staff like crap like being not seen as some sort of like abusive situation in some cases the out loud yes 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 it's the quiet stuff yeah yeah it's that underlying kind of subtle kind Mm -hmm. of quiet stuff Mm -hmm. that is still kind of It's not necessarily bite. See, and this is this is getting into the territory where a lot of times people will go, "Well, that's abuse." Yeah. Well, that's the ambiguous part when we talked earlier about you know the ambiguity. Yeah, the there's ambiguity that gray area of that gray area of yeah that kind of falls in that category. Now, yeah. is that abuse? Some people will argue it's not. Some people will argue it is, and it mm-hmm. falls into that gray area. Yeah, but it sounds like. From what I'm hearing, abuse actually d- starts more subtly and can progress um, in a lot of cases. If I start off subtly and I get what I want, mm-hmm. I'm going to fine-tune my skills to make that my specialty. Yeah. If that doesn't work, I'm going to have to step my game up. Got it. Now I have to figure out what I need to get and what do I have to do to get what I want. So it, a lot of time, it's a learned behavior. Sometimes we'll learn that from, we might learn that from our family of origin. We might learn that from our neighborhood. We might learn that from relatives. We might learn that, we might have a physical kind of connection with that mm-hmm. that kind of learning. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we'll learn it from TV. Sometimes we'll learn it from a movie. Sometimes our our concept of what is a normal relationship mm-hmm sometimes that falls into that category of, well, I'm not doing anything wrong. Yeah, it's I've what seen that. I've, I've always seen. seen. I've yeah. always seen that. Yeah. So what's wrong with that? Now yeah. you're telling me that's wrong. Wait, wait, hold on. 
Yeah, and it's kind of almost that element of how does the person know what's going to be wrong if that's what they've grown up with in their life. Like, if you're the child or family member of a perpetrator, and that's what you saw, and it wasn't spelled out to you as um, undesirable behavior, like, that's going to be what you go with because you don't know any better now that's not discounting what they're doing and that's not giving them a reprieve but it makes sense to me that you know for perpetrators of abuse like that they in some cases wouldn't even know that they're being abusive it's just how this is how i was uh, raised and so I'm raising my kid that way or this is how my parents interacted so this is how I'm going to interact with my partner and, and, and all of that. And then, then all of a sudden take that attitude and that's right but take that attitude now and then have somebody like me come up to you and say oh by the way that's domestic violence mm-hmm. and that's of abuse Mm-hmm. And oh, by the way, based on this assessment we just got done doing, based on all these questions and answers and attitude, uh, you're in a domestic violence perpetrator group. Mm. How receptive are you going to now be to suddenly saying you have to be in treatment? Yeah. When you can't even see and understand it, what you're doing for you anyway, mm-hmm. shape, matter, or form is wrong. Yeah. That's the difficulty a lot of times people will run into when they're suddenly told they have to go to treatment. And it's like, but w- but wait, what am I doing wrong? How do you make somebody <laughs> see that? How do you, or I should say, how do you help someone see that? There's several ways that you can do that. Um, Give us your favorite three. I'm kind of a big guy. My voice has a tendency to be somewhat intimidating at times. I can raise my voice, um, manipulate my body, manipulate my location, manipulate my tone, be assertive without being aggressive, and kind of be a little bit on the... I'll say exactly what they say is not a problem, but I'll say it to them in a manner that I know for a fact is going to be looked upon as being wrong. And sometimes I'll do that. I'll do that in the safest mode as I can. I've never never crossed the line to where it's suddenly like, okay, this guy's offending me and this guy's attacking me. Because I'll preface it by saying, well, let, let me let me just try something here. We're in a group now, so let's just take a group perspective. And the individual that says that, I will do that to them. And then take an immediate step back and go, okay, group, what what do you think? And then have the peers tell them, it sounded kind of of wrong. They'll use colorful language sometimes, but it's a matter of... (laughs) (laughs) That was wrong. <laughs> that was you. You can't do that. But they get a tan- They get a, the opportunity and a chance to kind of see that firsthand because they've now experienced that. So, and, and sometimes I'll say really nice things. I won't even say I won't. 
I won't call them anything other than their name. I won't. I, I'll, I'll give them all kinds of pleasantries. I'll, I'll even, you know, I'll give them all kinds of a, a praise. But I'm doing it based on a tone and a volume. And, and it, you know, if I'm standing over you and I'm pointing my finger at you and my hand is, you know, six inches away from your nose and I'm 6'3 and 250, and I'm telling and screaming at you at the top of my lungs, I love you. You don't hear I love you. So it, the words at that point don't matter. That's what they have a tendency to see, is the aggressiveness of the style of the approach. And sometimes that's where we have to go to, is that looking at, it's not what you say, it's sometimes how you say what it is that you're trying to get across. And sometimes we don't know how to say that. So sometimes we got to have a group on vocabulary and the meaning of words because words matter. And we talk about position and stance and tongue and volume and all of those things so that they can see that sometimes it's not what you're saying, but it's how you're saying it. Okay. That makes, yeah. No, I never thought of, I never thought of kind of that. You could be saying really nice things, but you hear something different because of the tone and the and the stance and everything like that it's it's yeah it's it's i think well, part of that gray area where it's like it's more right. complicated well, let me let me ask you a question mm -hmm. <clears throat> do you remember the conversation or do you remember what was how it was said or do you remember more so of what was said sometimes we mm -hmm. don't remember conversations as much as what was said it's like well i don't know I, I, you know it was hard to follow what they were saying about because all they did was scream they were just hollering. They were upset. You can obviously, well, what were they saying? I don't really know what they were even saying. I just know that they were angry. Yeah. If you listen to two people that are arguing and you're sitting back, you're not even in the argument. You're trying to figure out what's going on. All you can tell is these two people don't like each other. Mm -hmm. But what are they saying? If you walk away five minutes later and someone says, what were they arguing about? Most people are going to go, I don't know. It had something to do with this and that, and I don't really know because... Because it's the tone, it's the it's the attitude. It's, that's what you remember. Yeah. Most of the time in a conversation, it's about you know most people remember about f at most forty percent of the conversation. It's the gotcha. tone, the volume, and it's the stuff that you're looking for, and it's that mm -hmm. the undercurrents, the undertones, and the you know the body language and all those other stuff, the nonverbal stuff that we pay attention to. Yeah. So, what do you think are some warning signs for? potential abuse for either if somebody is considering whether they're in an abusive relationship or even like child abuse um in terms of those like what would be some of those warning signs that even you know parents should look out for their kids or parents should be looking out for themselves are you able to do what you want to do when you want to do it and don't have to ask permission mm. Do you feel like you have to ask permission to go to the grocery store and tell the, the individual that you're going to the grocery store and it's exactly what you're buying? That would be maybe a sign of abuse. If you're, if you're asking, hey, I'm going to go over to my girlfriend's house because we're going to go over and hang out and we're going to go over to my girlfriend's house and, you know, and then we're going to go hang out and you're asking your spouse and your husband goes, uh, I don't think so. Mm, that might be a red flag. Yeah. So it's kind of those subtle things that you're looking for. How come we can't have a conversation? Mm -hmm. 
You know, how come I never get a chance to pick what I want? How come, I, you know, when we're looking at those subtle undertones of mm -hmm. stuff, it's kind of like it comes up to where you kind of look at it and you kind of go, well, I don't know. Yeah. It's just, um, and it's not a case of am I happy in this relationship? That's not the question. The question is, is this an abusive relationship? If you, ask, if you ask somebody, are you in an abusive relationship, one of the first things that most people say is, well, he's never hit me. Mm, yeah. <laughs> I mean, think of... We're, we're both going, hmm. <laughs> yeah, think about it. When you watch any interviews, you watch anybody on TV, you watch any of the crime shows or any of that stuff, one of the first things that most people end up saying, or you listen to any interviews, mm -hmm. the first thing that people say when they ask that question well, were you in a, a, a an abusive relationship? Well, he never hit me. Yeah, but there's so many, and this is kind of why I wanted to talk about this, right? Is because I see this so much with friends in relationships where it's the verbal, yep. it's the verbal aspect. Yeah, they they never hit you, but there's a verbal aspect in here that is so prevalent that. I am borderline like, hey, you need to, you need to really think about this because they, they don't care for you. Like they are literally hurting you. They are toxic. They are, they are quote unquote bad, if you will. Um, and so yeah, that that makes sense to me that a lot of people equate it with the physical because even like, I think when we started, we were talking about like the myths and the men and everything like that, you know, it could be verbal. Uh, it also could be like sexual abuse. And so, you know, like there's that on top of this. Well, and I'm glad you brought that up because that's one of those things that ends up happening. Most men, the vast majority of men, in my opinion, there are men that don't fall into that category, but on a personal note, I hesitate to call them men because they're not acting like it but that's on a personal <laughs> note but most men are not going to want to let's say that they're in a committed intimate relationship with their partner mm -hmm. the female is upset and refrains and withholds any kind of affection mm -hmm. that affection is not shown there is no intimacy there's no hugging there's no kissing and sex is definitely way off the table but we're not even allowed to express, show, speak about any kind of intimate kind of contact. Mm -hmm. Most men are not gonna force. Because when the women in a relationship say no, whether you're married or not, if you're in a committed relationship and a female says no, no's the answer. Yeah, correct. And if you try to get, if you try to even get two men to sit down and talk about, and one one of them says, "Yeah, my wife is not allowing me to. We're not having sex, so I had to force it." All of a sudden, that other guy is probably going to punch him in the nose, or at least raise a cause of. Kind of sounds like that might have been rape. Mm -hmm. And most men will have that in the back of their mind. So in that case, what would you call? Yeah. 
I mean, if I'm withholding any kind of shown a sign of affection, I am not. I'm withholding that on purpose. I'm trying to hurt your feelings. I'm trying to, and I'm going to verbally talk to you about you can't do this and you can't do that, and we're going to bring up every negative stereotype. We're going to talk about your manhood. We're going to talk about this. We're going to talk. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, wait, time out. Is that abuse? Based on everything we've talked about today, probably. Is that emotional abuse? Is it physical abuse? Is it mental abuse? What kind of a, I mean, in that kind of Emotional, mental, verbal. Yeah. That's, yeah. That could be an abusive situation. So that's what, when you talked earlier about some of that stuff, that how do you know? Mm-hmm. You know because situations are going to pop up, and it's kind of an abusive relationship. And if you're in that kind of relationship, how long do you stay in that relationship? Yeah. If you're worried about your kid, though, mm-hmm. being in a relationship like that, like what are, th- what are the signs to know? Or even like if you're a family member and you're worried about a niece or or cousin or grandkid like how do you know if there's abuse going on like what are some of the telltale signs for that in your experience a lot of times people that are people that are the victims and i'll use that term now but people that are victims of physical abuse a lot of times are going to have a lot of nonverbal kind of shows, um, especially like with kids. Mm-hmm. If I have, if I have a child in my office and they're sitting, and I'm, and every time that I try to get within three feet of them, they increase the distance. Yeah. If I move my chair closer to the couch and they try to, and they keep constantly moving further down the couch, mm-hmm. kind of tells me that something is going on. I don't know what it is, but something is going on. Yeah. So there's that kind of subtle behavior. If I make a fast move in my office and they duck, something's going on so there are some telltale signs i mean those are the kind of the obvious ones those are kind of like the textbook kind of things that you can look at um if i raise my voice let's say that i'm in the office and my door is open and i have a child that's in my office and we haven't started the session and someone hollered down the, the hallway or something and they holler in or they're saying hey can you pick up this call and I raise my voice to say, and tell them I'll call them back later. And I raise my voice, and the child cowers because I raise my voice. It's not even directed towards them. But by raising my voice, I get a cowering effect from a child. Chances are something is going on. So there's those subtle, subtle silly kind of textbook kind of stuff that is looking at. But a lot of times is what kind of language is the kid using? If the kid is using, if the kid is cussing like a 30-year veteran of the military, hmm, something might be going on. (laughs) What, 
in that case, what are some steps that you should take if you see that abuse happening? And then we start getting into the legal aspects of it, and we kind of get into the the idea of can you call, typically speaking, can you call in and saying, hey, I don't know for a fact, but there is a possibility that something might be going on in this household. Yes, you can. Is, is that helpful, though? Because I've heard that sometimes that can be more dangerous to do that. That's the that's the edge. That's that that kind of in society. What do we do? Yeah. Right. I mean, we want to call. We want to do something. But it's almost what do we do? It's one of those we're danged if we do, danged if we don't. If I make a phone call, it could escalate the the. But if I don't make the phone call, it's going to continue. Mm-hmm. If you're in a therapeutic kind of environment, then. There's ways that you can draw information out to kind of mm-hmm. kind of track that down to see what it is because it may not be in the home. It may be at school. Yeah. So our assumption may be incorrect. So we have to kind of flesh that out and kind of figure that out. But we're not investigators. We're kind of investigators, but we're not technically investigators. It's not our job. Our job is to get whoever it is that we're seeing as therapists my job is to help them figure out how to manage whatever it is that they're in, mm-hmm. but also find a way to remove them from the situation as best they can. So sometimes we have to make the really hard call, mm-hmm. and so we have to kind of figure that out. But if I'm dealing with a child and their parents are going to come in, I'm going to talk to the parents. I'm going to ask some really tough questions, but I'm... Mm, you know, that's just going to help me to figure out what's going on with the child. It may be yeah. it only happens when they go over to spend a night at their aunt's house or their uncle's house or their grandmother's on the weekend or their grandparents. Mm-hmm. It, it may not be the home. It could be some other location. So mm-hmm. I can't make the assumption, oh, my gosh, this child is in an abusive situation and their parents are abu-. No, we can't make those assessments. And that's why I'm saying sometimes it's easier just to make a phone call and saying, hey, I think something is going on because then we can allow the professionals to do their job and let them figure it out. Yeah. So it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, and especially with being a therapist and being, it actually goes beyond therapists. Like you have um, therapist, you have um, uh, children's ministry uh, volunteers, um, even just anybody in the church. Um, and there's there's a lot of places where it's mandated reporting. Absolutely. Even RAs are right. mandated reporters. And so, you know, that, yes, it gets messy sometimes, and but that's the DCFS or right. that's the police's job to investigate those things. And so while you are taking the steps in order to get this person help, you're also letting as you're saying the professionals kind of do the groundwork so that you can get to the bottom of what it what the hell is going on and why is this happening well and you know and it's kind of it's kind of one of those things that you said it's your niece your cousin your your whatever and it's like it's a family member and you're Mm -hmm. not the professional yeah then you then it's a matter of that's the hard part yeah and they confided in you so you're like oh oh okay i need to I need to 
take this seriously and God forbid those people that don't, but I need to take this seriously and I want to help my family member. I want to help my friend. I mean, the counselor in me is like, if I could help my friend in every toxic relationship, I would, but that's, I can't. And that's not me. Um, but you know, if there's a can, a confidence that they're putting in you, you know, like even as a friend, I feel like it's a good rule of thumb to be like, Hey, you know, you can confide so much, but if it, if you're being hurt, like I want to help. And maybe, maybe there's kind of that gray area again there. But for me, just as growing up in the circle that I did, it was very important to me to be like, Hey, you know, if there's something going on, like we, we need to say something. Yeah. It kind of goes back to that, you know, see something, say something kind of stuff that we end up having to do. Yes, absolutely. It, it, the hard part is that we end up running into situations to where we're not a hundred percent sure what we should do. Should we say something? Should we not say something? My general rule of thought is if I have an individual that's telling me things that they are finding it very, very difficult to talk about, there is a degree of trust that has already been established because they're willing to be vulnerable enough to tell me something that they may not be willing to tell another human being. Yeah. If you look at it that way, so if you're talking to a family member and they tell you something that they're not going to tell anybody else in the family, that's a degree of trust that has been developed. They're coming to us for help. We need to figure out what we can do in order to help that situation. What in that case would you say is the best way to show up? Say a friend confides in another friend and they recognize that abuse is happening um, and maybe part of them recognizes it and the other part of them doesn't recognize some of it. What What is the best way? Um, and I'm not talking about whether you say something or not. And I'm not even talking about child abuse right now. Friend to friend, what's the best way that you can show up for them? Be supportive as possible. Be the person to count on. Be in the person to go to. Be the person that checks in. Be the person that makes the phone call. Be in the... If someone says, if you're in that kind of a situation, they say, hey, just give me, do me a favor. Give me a call every day. You know, and try to call me, you know, let, let's try talking when you're done from, before you're, when you're done with working on your way home. Give me a call. Mm-hmm. You know, that way, you know, maybe work is escalating the situation. You know, maybe there's an anger issue going on. Like when we deal with anger, anger management groups, we have this misplaced anger a lot of times that ends up happening. I'm mad at my boss. I'm mad at my entire work life. Everybody I work with are buttheads, and they're just, I hate my job, I hate my job, I hate my job, I hate my job. <laughs> yeah. I hate my job. I love my paycheck, but I hate my job, <laughs> I hate my job. And it makes you angry enough that who are you more than likely who are you now going to misdirect that anger to? Mm. 99% of the time, we're going to direct it to somebody we trust. Yeah. The hard part is our delivery and what we say and how we say it is going to come out all wrong. There's probably people that can think about times that they've been in arguments 
either on the receiving end or the giving end to where all of a sudden you're kind of taking on the idea of this person that's screaming at me right now is I'm not even really I have no idea what they're talking about this is not even directed to me what's going on that's misdirected anger you want to holler at the boss, but you don't want to be fired, even though your boss is a jerk, but you like your paycheck. Mm, I can't holler at the boss because I'll get fired. I can't holler at my coworkers because I'll get in trouble and then I'll get fired. Mm. I can't take it out at work. I can't get in an argument. I can't get into a fight. I can't, I, I, you know, I'm going to have to figure a way to manage how to, so I'm going to. You have to take it home, usually. You usually, generally speaking, if you're in a committed relationship, that relationship has now gone home. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, you know, there, there's a thing. That's, that's what ends up happening. Could you talk a little bit about how counseling would help both the perpetrator and the survivor? Because Josh and I are really big on, um, with mental health, going to counseling, going to therapy, making sure you're getting the help you need. And so how would you suggest counseling could help not just the victim, but the perpetrator as well? Let's start with the perpetrator. First of all, we, when you're in some kind of, when you're dealing with a perpetrator you, and you're not just a one-on-one, you have a group of people that may be in a domestic violence group. They, a lot of times they'll do domestic violence groups. They don't do domestic violence individual therapy. Sometimes they do, but for the most part, it's group. When you're dealing with a large group, you may have physical abusers, you may have emotional abusers, you may have mm, different types of abusers all the same, all in the same group. You're going to have to basically talk about all of those to everybody. It's a double-edged sword. I've been in groups to where physical perpetrators don't know how much f- verbal abuse kind of, if I don't hit you, you can't send me to jail. Wait hold on, that might be a skill set I can pick up. And unfortunately, that little 10% people that are always going to be there, sometimes domestic violence groups has a double-edged sword because sometimes that 10% can now hone a set of skills that they didn't necessarily have before. That's the downside. That's really creepy. (laughs) The hard part is that's the reality. It's the one that most people don't talk about. But sometimes you'll have people come back in the group and they'll say things like, hey, (laughs) I learned how to do that in a domestic violence group. Mm -hmm. I've had had a perpetrator come back, you know, several months later because they picked up another offense, mainly because they quit stopping, they quit coming the first time and then picked up another another case and then had to come back in because the court said you have to go back and, you know, it's like, yeah, and, you know, now it was a verbal abuse. I didn't physically hit him this time, but I, you know, I learned how to be physically abusive on my own. But in verbal abuse, you guys taught me how to do that because I, I didn't know that was a skill set. And they, had, you know, so it, it's mm-hmm. a double-edged sword. But you have to talk about the method of delivery for perpetrators. And on victims, you have to have the level and ways to receive it, to manage it, and to be able to recognize when it does cross that line for verbal, physical, all of those abuse. So in that case, if I'm understanding correctly, you put the perpetrators of any type of abuse in groups? Most of the time they'll go through group. Okay. And then that's where you can discover, besides that 10%, that's where you discover, oh, maybe I'm 
emotionally abusing this person as well. Most physical abusers, by the way, most physical abusers mm-hmm. are pretty good at all the other abuse. Yeah. They're, they're pretty good at it. And so they know that they're doing some verbal abuse. Because a lot of physical abusers want the confrontation. Mm-hmm. The hard part is sometimes they want it. That's, that's what they're looking for. So they're looking for a rise out of you. And if I can't, if I have to verbally abuse you long enough and often enough to get a physical response out of you and so that I can actually take, yeah. That's the scary side of domestic violence. That's why a lot of times, even going back to one of the earlier questions, that's why a lot of times people will pick and say, no, no, I'm not working with perpetrators. Mm-hmm. I'm only working with the victims because perpetrators are can be scary. The hard part, if you're working with perpetrators and you understand them, you can kind of get to that point of going, hey, knock it off. This is, you know, I know this is what you guys are thinking. I know this is, this is the, and people who deal with the perpetrators, unfortunately, have to understand that. Mm -hmm. But also understanding that for the most part, domestic violence is at the point where even former domestic violence perpetrators can get to that point where they can manage it. That's the part that a lot of people don't understand, is it's not that they're not redeemable, Mm -hmm. for lack of a better word. They are redeemable. Mm -hmm. Take some effort. Take some thick skin if you're a therapist, because you are going to get cussed out. You are going to get screamed at. You are going to get fingers pointed at you. I would not survive. <laughs> you are, you are going to be the receiver of some, sometimes some, some aggressive behavior because you're telling them something that they can't do or they shouldn't do. But it's not about you at the end of the day. It's and never, and yeah. yeah, it's never about you. And so as a counselor learning how to let that roll off that's because the th- that's, that's, thick, that's the thick skin yeah it's and that's why i'm saying you always have to maintain the idea it's the behavior not the person yeah that's it's the be it's the behavior you're looking at that's really good it's not the person it's the behavior i get i get people screaming at me all the time i've been called lots of different names Every once in a while, I get called the, my, you know, my name I was given at birth, but you know that that happens occasionally. <laughs> but a lot of times, I get called all kinds of names. Some people will start hollering at me because the next thing you know, I, I've been Karen, I've been I've been Bonnie one time, uh, I've been Frank, um, I've been called different names because when that anger is being expressed, it's the anger that's coming out. And so sometimes I'll point out and go, "Hey, hold on, this is a reminder." My name is not Bonnie, and I don't look like Bonnie. <laughs> I don't know what Bonnie looks like, but if she's 6'3", 250 with a beard, uh, we got That's issues. That's not me. <laughs> not me at all. <laughs> so, but the point being is when I point that out to them, we get the reaction from the group, the same reaction that Josh just gave. <laughs> because sometimes you have to put it in that kind of connotation so that the, the bulb goes off in their head and it kind of gets that light bulb moment. It's like, wait, hold on. That's a perfect example, and then you can talk about that disassociated anger, and you get that displaced anger, and you get, then you can talk about different types and forms of anger and the way that it takes, and it manifests. So, in that case, what would you say is the the absolute best way, or one of the best ways, to counsel a perpetrator? We've talked a l- about a lot of ways already, but 
in your opinion, what's what's one of the best? Letting the perpetrator understand that the behavior that they are currently doing is not acceptable behavior. It's not acceptable to anybody. Society says that we shouldn't do that. Yeah, that's really good. Your friends say you can't do that. Your family says you probably shouldn't do that. Definitely your spouse or significant other, the receiver of your, is saying that you shouldn't do that. Your kids, everybody is telling you you shouldn't do that. So let's talk about why you shouldn't be doing that. And sometimes we have to become the mirror and show them exactly what it looks like. And sometimes we just have to let them know. It's like, no, it's not acceptable to anybody. Can we move over and talk about now the receiver of abuse, how, sure. how counseling helps them? First of all, the first thing you have to understand is as a receiver of abuse, they are no longer the victim. Ooh, say more on that. The minute you, keep, the minute you remind them that a victim is a negative impacted statement, that's a victim. I'm a victim, I'm a victim, I'm a victim. It, it's, you know, I, I have no control. I have no control. When I'm the victim, I have no control. The moment you start talking about being a survivor, it has a tendency to have a different impact. They start understanding that as a receiver, that's all they were, is just a receiver. Is there a way to survive this? Yes. Is there a way to get through this? Yes. Is there a way to get over it? Yes. Is there a way to forget this? Absolutely no. I'm sorry. You are never, ever going to forget this. And sometimes as a therapist, I have come out and said, God willing, you'll never forget. Because sometimes, and that's enough to keep them from getting themselves into another relationship, it's going to be exactly like the last one. I see. Do you, do you see most um, survivors have a better idea of how to not get into those relationships, or do you see them often getting back into those relationships? We, a lot of it's, it's if they've learned, if they, if they break that relationship off and they have never been to treatment, more than likely they're going to get into a situation that's very, basically the same. Because sometimes they may have learned helplessness they have made they may have learned that oh no it's acceptable i'm not supposed to carry my 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 id i'm not supposed to have money i'm supposed to ask permission you know because i've always been in a relationship it's been like that so they may not know that those are warning signs those are flags those are things that may come up now i'm not saying those are the only signs, but there's lots and lots of different signs. Those are some of the subtle ones that people will go, well, wait, I wouldn't have never thought that's abuse, but that's that kind of subtle stuff you start looking for. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows the major stuff. It's that subtle stuff that you kind of you overlook and you kind of go, I wouldn't have thought of that. Hmm. So with all that being said, what are like the cultural impacts, right? Because different cultures, there's absolutely somewhere women – dare I say, submit to the man Absolutely. in the house. Yep. And what's seen as, like, not socially acceptable here and can, uh, like, different cultures be one of those things that's really hard to get past? 
Yes, and here's the and here's the point, and it's a great question because it, it, when you're dealing with therapy, I for one, I don't know if there's a lot of therapists do it. I be, I would like to believe that a lot of therapists do it, and it's pretty much an accepted norm for therapists that are culturally relevant. If I'm dealing with somebody that is from a culture to where we're trying to make that cultural norm the cultural norm, if they've always been raised with that and it's, that's accepted, that's viewed as normal, then I as a therapist... I would like to think us as a society should not tell them that what they're doing is wrong. We have to normalize it. We have to normalize the behavior to the point of, yeah, but what you're doing or what they are doing is outside of that norm. So it's going from this cultural aspect to this extreme. Correct. And it's the extremes that we're dealing with. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, it, it may be in a relationship, depending on what your culture is, that, you know, the male-dominated, quote-unquote, the male-dominated kind of culture. Okay, mm-hmm. great. But is that male-dominated culture, is that abusive? I'm not saying that male-dominated culture is bad. I'm saying it's fine if that's your culture. Mm-hmm. Male-dominated that's fine. That's acceptable. Yeah. Is it abuse? That's why I said in the very beginning, abuse is based on the person that, that's in it. Yeah. You, I don't get to make the choice. It's not for me to make that choice. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you that what is going on is abuse. Mm. If I'm not from that culture, I can't stand on I can't. No, I'm sorry. I can't, I can't do that. Yeah. What is, what's the issue? And that's, that's basically one of the questions I ask is, what's the issue? Well, he goes above and beyond doing this. Oh, okay. Got so it. what's culturally normal in, the, in, in your culture? Let's talk about normal culture for you. Got it. Okay. I might have to do some research. I may have to make mm-hmm. a, fo- a couple of phone calls. Yeah. You know, I, I may have to, you know, my, daughter, my daughter-in-law is Japanese. If I have, you know, something having to do with the Japanese culture, guess who I'm calling? Yeah. I'm going to call my, my daughter-in-law and go, hey, I'm sorry, but uh, I have a question. <laughs> no, I'm, I got friends that, you know, that are Muslims. I'm going to have to call somebody, that one of my friends, and go, hey, I'm sorry, but mm, I don't understand the customs and I don't understand the culture as much, mm-hmm. so help me understand what is acceptable, what's not acceptable. And that's the biggest thing is it's help me understand right. rather than let's change this. Right, because it's not up to me. Yeah. That's why I'm saying what's normal, what's not normal. Mm-hmm. What's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Yeah. Is this accepted within the culture? Yes. Then great. What's not accepted in the culture? Yeah, absolutely. And then what what theory or communication style for those mental health professionals out there do you right. generally use for um, counseling uh, either perpetrators or survivors because I would think maybe a little bit of like trauma focused therapy but I'm wondering if there's something out there that you found that has been really helpful in uh, making headway or showing progress you know 
I do a lot of MI. Right? I do a lot of just sitting down and having a conversation. Yeah, so motivational interviewing. Motivational MI. Yeah, MI is motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing, let me kind of explain it in non I'll put it in kind of common language and I'll explain it the way that I had a client explain to me what he thought I was doing to him mm-hmm. was a tactful approach to convincing him to do something that he didn't want to do a ta- I like that a tactful approach <laughs> it's a tactful approach to find out information from the individual that I'm talking to to find out what they want to do and what they know they need to do and trying to get those to match in a life. I need to do this and I want to do this and I have no idea how to do that, but that's what I want to do, but I'm not moving in that direction. So how do I get them to start moving in that direction to convince them it's a good idea to move in that direction? I can't drag them. I can't push them. I can't kick them. I can't, you know. It's a gentle nudge. Maybe, maybe not so gentle, but it's a, it's a nudge. The train's leaving the station. They yeah. may be dragging on the caboose when it's leaving, but they're, they're going one way or the other. Yeah, going, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Sometimes they're in the car. Sometimes they're dragged by the caboose. But most of the time, they're going to go one way or the other. But sometimes mm, hesitantly and sometimes with a lot of enthusiasm because it's kind of like that light bulb goes off and go, oh, you mean I can do this? Because they don't even think that they're capable of doing that. So you're kind of, that's more of the, hey, so do you kind of think that might be something you might want to work on? You know, everybody else seems to be doing this. Is that something that you can you can kind of see yourself doing? <laughs> I hear the tone kind of being like a, you should probably work on this, but I'm not going to say that because that's not helpful. And I need you to choose that on your own. But do you want to work on this? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, everybody in room 101 is going to go over to room 105. Yeah. Do you want to go? Don't you think that would be a good idea if you want to mm-hmm. be with everybody? Yeah. Or no. you can stay here by yourself if you'd like to, but everybody else is going to be in 105. So yeah, that's I where mean, we're going. Yeah. And then you and then you go. Mm-hmm. And they either stay in room 101 or they come over and, and join you in room 105. It's kind of that y- yeah. you go anyway because that's the direction you're going to go. Absolutely. That's a easy understanding of what MI is, but it's kind of having that conversation to see where people want to go. What do they want to work on? What do they don't want to work on? Those types of things. But then once you can find that information out, then you can kind of draw that information skillfully as much as possible, draw what it is that they really want to work on, draw that out. What What is the thing that you would tell those people who are living um, – in those situations and contemplating whether to leave, what would you tell survivors? That's a decision that they're going to have to make. Mm. That's a decision that, that's not a decision that I, it's, it's not me. I don't know the, let's say that there's kids involved. Kids want to be with their father or kids want to be with their mother. Am I going to tell a parent that they have to leave? What impact is that going to have on the kids? If I don't know the entire situation, I, I don't want to get in there and make a decision because making a decision in that regard 
may cause the problem to be worse or have an impact on people that it shouldn't have an impact on. So I, we talk about it. We look at the pros. We look at the cons. We look at where it's at. And sometimes the obvious choice is if we don't leave for right now and temporarily go to someplace else, even if it's only temporarily, can you go stay with mom for a while? Can you go stay with your aunt? Can you go stay with your friend? Can you take you and the kids and kind of go take a long weekend and stay with your friends for a long weekend while we work on you? Because hmm. we can't work on them unless they come in. But you're in the office, so let's deal with what we can. If you're in my office, we're going to talk about what we can fix about you because I can't fix them. That's the part that they need to understand is we can't, and this isn't about fixing them. This is about fixing you. The one that's in my office is the you. Everybody not in my office is the them. We can't fix them. We can only fix you. And it's also that element of how do we make you safe? Make you safe and sometimes even understanding them. We're not accepting them. We're just understanding. Mm -hmm. We're not forgiving it. We're not excusing it. We're not doing anything to it. We're just understanding it. Yeah. Are some people physically aggressive and that's the nature of the beast for them? Yes. Great. We need to understand that. Mm -hmm. We might not be able to accept that, but we also may not be able to change that. But yeah. is just just the way that they're... Are they way, that way with everybody? Yeah, they are. Oh, great. That's just who they are. Mm -hmm. We need to understand that. So can you deal with the aggressive approach as long as it doesn't cross the line? And where's that line at for you? Mm. It's kind of like normalizing the behavior, but kind of getting them to understand what is the behavior that they're looking at and at what regard. So we have to understand that. So they have to tell us. And based on what they do, we're trying to, some degree, we're trying to normalize it. And if we're hearing behavior that's not normal, we point that out and going, hey, just so you know, most people don't come home from work and kick the wall every time that they walk in the door. But then they tell you, don't worry about it because I fixed drywall all day. That's not normal behavior. That's that's not, there's something wrong with that. Is there anything that we maybe didn't cover, any kind of last words that you would want to leave us with? When you're dealing, if you're dealing with friends, or you're dealing with family members that you believe are going through some type of domestic violence, even if it's just severe arguments, it, it kind of falls into that category. And they come up and they ask you, what should I do? You have to, to the best of your ability, try to understand what the situation and try to get them the help that they need and send them off to that professional. Whether or not it's a therapist, whether or not it's, um, are they invo highly involved with the church? Great. Let's talk to the pastor. Let's talk to the priest. Let's talk to the rabbi. Let's talk to the imam. Let's talk to who, who do we need to talk to? Is the imam going to help? be able to help me? Is the priest going to be able to help me? Can I talk to them? Can I, is there somebody I can talk to? Is there the deacon? Who, who can I go talk to? Who in that religious body of work that you're going to, who do we talk to? Is, is that going to help? 
can you go to a therapist? Can you, do you know where you can go? Is there a resource center I can send you to? Is there, you know, if we're dealing with the, whatever the situation is? They may be dealing with a culture that I don't understand. I'm going to send them off to you. I'm going to, I'm going to do my best to reach out to the cultural center and go, hey, I'm a therapist. I'm dealing with a client. I'm kind of at a loss. And I hate to sound like an idiot, but <laughs> I'm kind of ignorant and I need some information. Is there somebody that I can talk to that might be able to understand a little bit more of the culture? so that I can get a better understanding of it as a professional. If you're living in that culture, you know what is normal and what is accepted and what is not accepted. Has it crossed over that boundary? And if it's crossed over that boundary, who within that culture might I be able to talk to that might be able to have a conversation and say, hey, on a scale of one to 10, you're at a 15. Most people leave it at about a five or six. Uh, let's find a way to get you back down to a five or six. Mm -hmm. Great. Let the within the culture handle that, whether it's religious or any other type of culture. Yeah. So, but if it's a friend, do your best to talk to them. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I think both me and Felicia were kind of over here, just kind of captivated as a, as it were, just kind of learning and everything. Um, I hope for everybody out there that this was uh, informative and just, um, I don't know, uh, we were teasing Danny earlier that he should read books just because of his voice. Yeah, audiobooks. But yeah, like, it, thank you so much for, You're more than welcome. Yeah, for being on the podcast. That being said, uh, if you do know anybody in a domestic violence relationship or anybody who's the receiver of abuse uh, we'll link some resources down in the show notes for you so you can reach out to different places to get help or point people towards so with that stay messy and stay unfiltered see ya